The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we got a really, really exciting show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how you doing? I'm doing quite all right. Definitely excited for tonight. Yeah, our guest tonight is Mr. Brian Forrester, an amazing researcher, writer. We're going to be talking about one of his books, specifically Elongated Skulls of Peru and Bolivia, The Path of Viracocha. And if you haven't read this book, I definitely encourage folks to pick it up. Uh, it deals with the topic of elongated skulls. And a lot has been said over the years. And that's why we're really excited to have Mr. Forrester on the show tonight to discuss this topic. So you know what? I'm just going to Make it brief. I'm going to let Genevieve do the introductions, and then we're going to get our guest on the line. So Genevieve, if you would do the honors. Well, Brian Forster is a leading researcher and author in the study of ancient South American civilizations, in particular the Incas, with also an avid interest in the various ancient elongated skulls and incredible megalithic structures found in that region of the world. Though born in the U.S., Brian grew up on the west coast of Canada, graduating from the University of Victoria with a Bachelor of Science Honours degree. Over the years of growing up there, he developed a keen interest in native art. Since 1995, he's mainly lived outside of North America, though. His first stop was Hawaii, after having developed a passion for carving and sculpture at the age of 25 and taking on the role of assistant project manager in the construction of a 62-foot double-hull sailing canoe called Moakia Opeilani, I hope I didn't butcher that one, and the restoration of the famous Moolele sailing canoe. The project lasted for two years, following which he decided to spend the next decade exploring the rest of Polynesia in the quest for the source of the Polynesian people. It was after this little adventure that Peru came into the picture. Brian began studying the Inca culture in particular, leading to the writing of the first book, A Brief History of the Incas. To date, he's written a total of 23 books, his latest being Akhenaten, The Heretic Pharaoh, which was just published in August of last year. He also writes articles for GrahamHancock.com, so be sure to check out his material on there. Brian currently lives in Peru with his wife, dividing his time between Paracas and Cusco, and apart from leading um, numerous tours all year round, he's the assistant director of the Paracas History Museum. He's also appeared on numerous television shows, including Ancient Aliens, on 15 occasions, countless radio shows and podcasts, of course, and has explored over 90 countries to date. And with that, I have the incredible honor of welcoming, all the way from Peru, Brian Forster on West of the Rockies. Mr. Forster, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. I know you, you travel quite a bit and are always on an adventure, really. So we really appreciate that you took the time to be here. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, this is really a fascinating uh, subject, the subject of artificial cranial deformation. Let me start asking you this. Body modification has been practiced throughout human history. What 
drew you to study and research the practice of artificial cranial deformation? Well, it was when I actually saw them in person. I, I had seen them on television, on various shows, where they were described as being aliens, Nephilim, etc. But when I was actually able to see them here in Peru, then that's what uh, sparked me, because it's pretty little academic study of them. One of the things that I find interesting is that it seems that elongated skulls, as you point out in your book, are found in every continent except Antarctica. But when you look at the map of where the skulls are found, they're almost found at the same uh, longitude and latitude, if I may use the terms, uh, and I hope I'm using them correctly. But it seems like they're found roughly along the same lines around the globe. Why do you think that is? That's a very interesting point. I haven't actually thought of that, but they have they have been found in Australia, they've been found in um, Europe and the Middle East, but the most um, the most fascinating ones are actually here in Peru, and specifically the Paracas people. There is another interesting aspect of this, and I would love to hear your opinion, is in South America, we have these magnificent monuments and these remnants of these great civilizations. However, here in North America, we don't have the pyramids. We don't have those type of temples. What do you think stopped? Was it the migration of these people never made it north? And that's why we don't see it up here. Well, I think actually we're looking at structures that could be 12,000 plus so at the time of their construction, most of North America was still covered by mild ice. Um, but places like Peru and Egypt were never covered by ice during the last stage. A lot of people get caught up on the, uh, the Inca civilization, but in your book you also mentioned that the Inca civilization is not the oldest one. What evidence have you found that there were other ancient civilizations that were there previous to the Inca? Well, a lot of the construction, especially the megalithic works in Cusco, Sacred Valley, and even parts of Machu Picchu, could not have been achieved by the Inca, because the Inca were a Bronze Age civilization, and the stone that we find, the megaliths made out of, are much harder stones like basalt and granite, and those can only be shaped by tungsten carbide or diamond tools. So that's why we can see um, that the Inca built their city on top of a much more ancient city. Now, let's get into the uh, elongated skulls. And uh, obviously, a lot has been said throughout the years as to what and how and what the purpose of this practice was. How do you think that this idea came about? Well, in basically every culture that did this practice, or maybe every culture that did this practice, whether it was on the west coast of Canada and the U.S. or in, um, in Europe or among the Hun or in Australia or uh, Melanesia or Peru and Bolivia, etc., it was a way to differentiate the, no the noble class people from the common people. Um, and so that's pretty much the case everywhere, that it was a, to physically distinguish the royalty from the commoners. Were there any health risks? The brain seems to fit quite snugly in, in the uh, cranial cavity, and as many people know, it's kind of floating in there. Are there any type of uh, uh, repercussions that could incur from doing this to one's head? 
You would think that would very much be the case, and especially when you're dealing with newborn babies of, of royal people, um, the practitioners would have to be absolute experts at doing it, because if they wound up killing a royal baby, they, they'd probably be killed themselves. So that's the curious thing. Why would you uh, go through such a, a major process that would take between two and three years? Uh, why was it so important to these people to physically look different from the common people. And um, I'd like to dig a little deeper into that question. When, um, when for instance, someone experience, experiences a concussion or when there's a tumor growing in the brain and pressing on certain areas of the brain or when there's just a pressure buildup for some reason, you do seem to commonly see physical, at least psychological effects. For instance, symptoms of psychosis can occur, hallucinations. How is it that there was no possibility, or at least as far as we know, no evidence that it caused these mental issues that we would expect nowadays. Well, that's a very good point. The interesting thing is that the Paracas people who, they died out 2,000 years ago, but they were experts at brain surgery. Uh, more than 50% of the patients would survive um, having what's called trepanation done to them. They would live on for many years afterwards. So they, the strange question is, what is the link between cranial deformation and this type of brain surgery? If, just going on the possibility that there's a slight chance that they did, for instance, have hallucinations, could it be possible that those cultures actually saw them as favorable things? For instance, in certain African tribes, you're told that those who um, you know seem to for at least in the Western culture, we, we call it hallucinations, but they might call it seeing into an alternate reality or seeing something of the divine. Is it maybe that they just thought it was normal and actually favorable? It could very well be. The, they don't know the cultural context because these people have been for 2,000 years, but they were also supposedly practitioners of, of uh, using hallucinogenic plants like the San Pedro cactus, or at least among the priesthood, in order to enter alternate states of reality. That's super interesting, yeah. Do you find that the use of psychedelic plants played a major role in these ancient civilizations? I believe very much so, but what we're starting to find out now is there's a, a difference between um, the vast majority of the Paracas skulls, which have been uh, or the result of the cranial deformation, and about 4% of them, which appear to have been born with elongated heads. So what we're starting to theorize is that the original Paracas people actually had naturally elongated heads, and as they started to interbreed with normal-looking people, uh, the normal uh, head shape characteristics started to take over, and that's when the cranial deformation began. And what are the chances that some of these skulls were born that way, or what, compared to the chances that they were artificially deformed, but they simply didn't leave a trace of artificial deformation? Well, the great thing is that I've had two physicians, um, I've had many physicians look at them, but uh, one specifically, uh, his name is Ken, and he's a radiologist in the United States, and when I showed him uh, examples of the skulls that we think are naturally born that way. He said, he completely agreed. He said, whatever 
these skulls are I'm looking at, they're not human beings. They're not homo sapiens sapiens because you can't alter the shape of the skull that much. Speaking of that, what are some of the characteristics that cannot be easily explained that you have found in some of these elongated skulls? Well, it's the overall shape of the skull. It's very complex in terms of its curvature. Most cranial deformation is simply the flattening of, of the back and the front of the skull. But these ones have a strange protuberance um, around the forehead area. They're missing one of the set, uh, one of the sutures in the, the skull. The eye socket is larger than normal, um, where the spinal column enters the skull, the, uh, which is called foramen magnum. It's much further back than normal. And also there are two holes in the back of the skull, which seem to be for nerve blood flow. So those are characteristics that uh, medical doctors who have looked at these special skulls say they, they don't understand any of it. They say that none of this should be there. Is there a possibility that these uh, characteristics could be caused by the bone being stretched and uh, the cranium basically having to rearrange itself? Or are these genetic changes? They seem to be genetic. At least that's what... Um, that's what the radiologist from the U.S. said, and also we had, an, uh, we had a major discovery recently up at Lake Titicaca in a very small museum, and uh, there we found a perfectly preserved full skeleton with a very elongated skull, and uh, the two doctors that we took to look at, uh, at that skeleton simply said, there's no way that... Uh, that that can be cranial deformation. This has to be a different kind of humanoid. And as well, found buried with this uh, individual, which turned turned out to be a 13-year-old female, was a fetus. Um, and the fetus's head size of his torso. And um, what's the body like in terms of size in comparison to the head and in comparison to the proportions of a um, homo sapiens sapien body? Well, it, it, it depends on the location. The most interesting uh, skulls and skeletons are found either at Lake Titicaca or here at Paracas. And so in the, the, the two that were found at Lake Titicaca, we found out that they were royalties that were born in the same, or that were buried in the same tomb. And the radiologist strongly believes that it was mother and baby that both uh, died during childbirth. Um, and so... Uh, the uh, the skeleton of, of the female or the skull of the female is approximately the cranial volume of a normal person. And um, I'm interested to know why elongation of skulls seem to have stopped so um, relatively suddenly on a global scale. Or um, are there more contemporary cultures that perhaps still practice this tradition? Well, actually, yeah, the most common time frame is about 2,000 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at Europe or, or you look here in Peru, etc. But up until I think about the 1950s or maybe 1960s, there were people in the Congo of Africa called the Mangbetu, and they were still performing cranial deformation. And also a tribal group in Melanesia as well, up until at least the 1950s or 60s. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it did eventually die out as a practice? Well, I think in the case of the Congo 
and Melanesia. It was probably missionaries and or the government that decided that this practice should not no longer be done. Um, but in, in Peru, even the, even the high level of the Inca people are believed to have had elongated skulls. I just find it fascinating that there is absolutely no community in the world that practices it anymore at all, while other types of um, artificial deformations do continue up to current, you know, modern day. That's true. One of the, uh, the things that I found interesting reading your book was that it appears that the people in the Paracas region, it seems that their skin tone was lighter than what most of the people that live in that area look like. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what set them apart from the other natives of the area? Well, that's another intriguing aspect of it. Um, the Royal Paracas people all had dark red hair, uh, and that's genetically. The hair's analyzed, and it's at least 30% thinner than normal of American hair, and it's wavy. So those who have analyzed the hair say that uh, these people were much closer to being Caucasian than to being Native American. Also, red hair is closely associated with light colored skin and possibly even having green eyes. So whoever these ancient people were, they were not, um, they were likely not directly related to Native American people. And does that therefore imply that perhaps mass migration from more northern or colder climates occurred or uh, was the climate perhaps not as hot as we now know it as? Because melanin, the presence of melanin in hair and skin is at least required for homo sapiens to um, protect themselves from the sun. Well, another aspect is the fact that these people lived in underground houses and... Um the only reason I can think of to do that is because being from a very different climate, uh, they had very light skin. Paracas is sunny 350 days of the year. So if you were, if you had light colored skin and you didn't have any kind of sunblock protection, your skin would just be constantly burning. And so that's why I think they uh, decided to live in, uh, build their houses underground. Would they have had perhaps vitamin D deficiencies then? Or was their diet, did it not require as much vitamin D as um, the modern day human does? The diet here would have been spectacular because this is one of the most productive parts of the ocean in the world. So in terms of having seafood, they would have had plenty. They also developed very advanced agriculture in a climate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Northern European extraction and I, I, to some degree, have to be careful when I, when I go out in the sun here because I just fry. And I, I think it was the case of these people, too. Mm -hmm. right. That's interesting. Yeah. Mr. Forrester, can you tell me a little bit about the path of Viracocha and who Viracocha was? I was reading about it in your book, and it sounds like almost a, a Christ-like figure in a way. Um, and I don't mean to bring this uh, Spaniard conquistador mentality to the uh, conversation but it does seem to be a deity of the region. Well, Viracocha is the name of the creator god. He's an invisible force, but he supposedly, like this, uh, uh, he sent individuals to become teachers of the native people. And so quite often, Viracochans are described as being quite tall with full beards, 
and this would have happened more than 2,000 years ago. It also relates to other ancient teachers in Mexico with Kublai and Quetzalcoatl. I believe that, um, that they re really were teachers from another land who came and taught some of the Native American people. And what is the path of Viracocha? Because this was also a, quite a, a central point you make in your book that along what is called the path of Viracocha, there are some very prominent landmarks. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's quite an amazing discovery that was made um, at least a couple of decades ago. is isn't well known, and that's that all of the megalithic sites in Peru and Bolivia are on this one line called the Path of Viracocha. It goes from the west to the southeast. So go Machu Picchu and uh, Tiwanaku in Bolivia are just three of the ancient megalithic sites that are located along this Path of Viracocha. And moving on to a slightly um, different question, could an elongated skull, um, one caused by um, you know genetics as opposed to artificial deformation, could it have been due to a gene mutation that they perhaps favored and tried to selectively breed themselves? Or is that too much of a modern Hitlerian um, thought and practice? Well, I think that there are... Uh, royal bloodline, it's quite common in many different societies. Of course, in Europe, you had that where you had a lot of inbreeding mm -hmm. because they were trying to re retain certain genetic characteristics which um, were specifically theirs. We have started initial DNA testing, and so far it looks like these people either came from Northern Europe or, or the Middle East. We're only in the early stages of it. They would not have been people that crossed the Bering Land Bridge with all of the other Native American people. They probably traveled by sea, by the ocean. Let's talk about some of these megalithic structures because they are they are quite fascinating. There are some excellent photographs in the book, and these are massive, massive rocks with perfect flat surfaces and ninety degree angles. What can you tell us about this? And did they have the technology to do this? Well, that, that's what I first saw when I went to Cusco for the first time. I was told that everything was made by the Inca, and I've been working with tools all of my life. And some I could see you could do bronze tools, but others are in, in very hard stone, very large stones that fit together with surgical precision. So I automatically became fascinated because most academics believe that all the work was done by the Bronze Age Angels, and it's clearly impossible. It really boggles my mind sometimes how science and scientists, and look, by this, I don't mean that what they're doing is, is wrong by any way. I think science has allowed us to do some amazing things and will continue to allow us to do magnificent things. But I always find interesting how science will uh, almost downplay some of these findings. And as you point out in your book, they thought that they just did it with mallets, more or less, right? Or stone objects or bronze chisels, and the, the problem with, uh, I wouldn't say it's a problem with science, but it's a problem on some level with archaeology in that they don't bring in outside experts, like, uh, for example, bring in a someone who builds stone walls and say, how, how would you build this megalithic structure? What tools would you use? Uh, they don't tend to do that, uh, which is really not only sad, it's actually kind of stupid as well. Why do you think so many modern-day academics are so 
apparently adamant to deny older advanced civilizations compared to those commonly mentioned and taught um, in modern-day classes and shown in modern-day textbooks? I think it's because that's what they were taught. And it's difficult to break away from that paradigm because your whole career has been based on falsehood, <laughs> but you don't want to... You, you don't want to um, be too much of, of, a, of a, a rogue and actually look at the scientific facts. Yeah. And that's where I, I have a, a, a great position because I don't, I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't belong to a faculty an institute or anything. So I can, I can bring in experts like geologists and stonemasons and people like that and say, how would you approach this project? Is it possible that a branch of age culture did this? And no one's been able to say, oh, yeah, they did. They said, no, there's no way. Yeah. Um, and what do you make of critics that completely doubt you and theories um, taught or at least proposed by the likes of David Childress and Lloyd Pye? And what of websites such as badarchaeology.wordpress.com? I, I know that comes up a lot in Google searches. Uh, yeah, I know. And uh, quite often they get their facts wrong. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, again, I, I consult with geologists who, will, who can tell me exact hardness of certain stone. I consult with engineers. I consult with stonemasons who will tell me how, and how this stuff could have been done, what sort of tools you, uh, you would require. And I don't think sites like Bad Archaeology does the same consultation with outside experts. Yeah. Mr. Forster, we're going to take a quick break and, uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation on the elongated skulls and megaliths. And believe me, this, this is all fascinating stuff. So if you'd be so kind to hang on the line, we're going to play a few tunes and then we're going to be right back. Okay, great. All right, guys, hang tight. We have Brian Forster on the show tonight. And man, this is a heavy discussion. It's really fascinating, this topic. I mean, we've talked about it off air a million times and it's really yeah, a treat yeah. for me to have Mr. Forster with us tonight. All right, we're going to go out with this track by a band that uh, unfortunately is uh, is caught up in a lot of uh, legal issues at the moment. Here's goes with From the Pinnacle to the Pit, West of the Rockies, coming right back in just a few minutes. West of the Rockies With Frank Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. Man, we're having a lot of fun tonight talking about this fascinating topic. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter. Man, I can't even talk right now. <laughs> I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. Check out the website, WOTRradio.com. As always, I'm joined by Genevieve, Genevieve Uwe on Twitter. And our guest tonight, as I mentioned, is Mr. Brian Forster. Uh, Mr. Forster, uh, where can people keep up with all your adventures and get your books and all that good stuff? Well, location actually is my website which is hidden and it has I almost full time on it it's such a massive site it contains lots of photographs and interviews and uh, almost 900 YouTube videos all of my books uh, 95% of the information is free so people are 
and go ahead and just look up. Uh, there's even an internal search engine, so you just have to type in a, a word or a phrase, and it'll automatically upload different um, aspects of a certain location or topic. Very nice. That's really cool. So we definitely urge people to go check that out. And it's great because we're in an age where uh, there's a lot of paid content out there. And I feel like this knowledge is important and should be accessible to folks. So it's really good to hear that you make uh, a lot of this information available to them. Yeah. Let's get back into these uh, these megaliths because there is something that I find really interesting. You know, I, I work in audio and, and all of these type of things. And in your book, you talk about a visit you made with an engineer, Christopher Dunn. And uh, he's done some fascinating research into the pyramids of Giza and the ancient civilization in, in Egypt. And it was something I found really fascinating. You guys did a test. I believe you, you were just simply using an iPhone app to generate, I think, the tone of A. Can you tell me a little bit about that experiment of, of using a tone and what happened when you guys played that tone? Sure. Well, I would guess about four years ago, we started to develop uh, a theory that the reason why some of the megalithic structures were built, like the megalithic towers at Silistani, uh, why the stone had to fit so tightly together had something to do with resonance or vibration. So when Christopher Dunn and I were with a group at Silistani, we uh, climbed into one of the intact towers and uh, it's like a beehive shape inside. And then we, he, he had a tone generator that plays different notes. And so he was playing around with that. And it was, I think, 440 hertz was actually the note that made the sound amplify incredibly. So that gave us our first inkling that these structures, in fact, were specifically tuned to specific frequencies. You discovered that the note A resonated um, almost perfectly. Um, is there a significance of the A note? Does it perhaps resonate with a specific part of the earth or the body? Because people claim online that in sound therapy and tuning fork therapy that certain notes reverberate specifically with certain parts of the human body and certain organs. Well, that's right. And actually, um, modern-day... A, I believe, is 440 hertz, but natural A, which is an older tone, is actually 432. Mm -hmm. So it, um, it, is, it and its octaves are, I believe, what the resonance of the earth itself is. And so these would be, it seems like the towers that still astounding were energetic chambers and resonating to Mother Earth's own tone, which is many octaves down, but you can simply utilize octaves that we can hear properly. And we find the exact same thing in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid in Egypt. What purpose would these uh, structures serve? People have speculated for years what the pyramids could be. And in your book, you explained that this same test was carried out in the pyramids and it yielded similar results. So what are all of these uh, structures? Are they some type of... Uh, energy emitting generators uh, to your knowledge what would you say yeah i would say energetic but whoever whoever built these things had a very different mindset than us so for example there's a little farm that we visit near silostani um which is a very simple farm it's a an enclosed wall with little buildings inside and all of the buildings are rectangular or square except one 
So I asked the, the farmer, um, why is this little building round compared to being square or rectangular? And he said, well, it helps. This is where we store our seeds. So this is, um, if you have a circular building, then the air can enter and, um, and ventilate it a lot more efficiently than a square building. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And then he said, oh, and my grandfather also taught me that it helps in, uh, enhance the power of the seed itself, making them grow better. So wow. that's, that's what we're looking at with that. That's really interesting. I mean, it seems like there was a level of knowledge and understanding that definitely, uh, in many ways, I think, surpasses uh, what we know now, or at least what we are willing to be open to understand. And I, I think it's interesting to um, think as well that at least, um, you know, in the modern day West, we're always told that if you talk to your flowers and to your plants in the garden, and if you sing to them, that they grow better. And it's one of those old wives' tales that you always hear. And this may actually legitimize that, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually true because the ancient Inca, um, it even happens in modern-day Peru in the highlands. The, the farmers and people who work the fields, they sing to the crops um, when they're planting them, when they're weeding them, when they're watering them, etc. Because it's it's an ancient practice that if you if you produce um, harmonic tones which are earth friendly, that the, it actually does seem to enhance the growth of plants. So it's a very ancient concept. Mr. Forster, let me uh, take it back to this uh, tones because a while back I watched the program online on I believe it was called the Doorway of Aramumuru, which is located near Lake Titicaca as well. And I wanted to know, what do you know about it? I remember in that program, they talked about the legend of this doorway. And the reason why I bring it up is because according to legend, the individual needed to hum or sing, I think, three tones, three specific tones to activate this doorway. And as legend would have it, it would open up and allow this individual to travel, I guess you could say, to a different dimension. What do you know about this uh, doorway of Aramumuro and some of the legends that surround it? Does it fit in with the narrative of the elongated skull? Well, it is located uh, probably about two miles or so from Lake Titicaca in the region of Puno, which is on the way to the border of Bolivia. No one, archaeologists don't know who made it. They, of course, if, if they can't explain something, it has to be an Inca construction, but they have no idea who who made it because it's quite unique. But the, the stone itself is red sandstone, so it's very high in iron content. And uh, iron, of course, conducts energy and electricity. So it could actually have been some kind of portal for communication. Uh, there are stories that people would make tones and they would physically enter, which I don't believe. But I think uh, you could have possibly used it in ancient times as a communication device with some similar structure, because we do see uh, indentations in hard stone walls in different parts of the highlands of Peru. So it literally could have been some kind of communication device. And um, going back to the point that, you know, a lot of these um, megalithic structures were made out of parts of rock that had to fit together perfectly. And um, I believe you do mention that a Bronze Age civilization simply could not have made surfaces so smooth and so straight because to essentially um, sand them down, you would have had to have a material that was harder than this rock. 
which would have had to been um, diamond containing. Why is it that such a people, at least in theory, could not have flattened rock that smoothly? And um, why is it that they couldn't have had maybe um, something diamond containing to do that? Well, there are no natural diamonds in Peru, so they would have to come from somewhere like South Africa. Um, but it's the perfection of the surfaces, and only at Pumapunku do you find flat surfaces. They, all of the others are polygonal, which is much more complicated. So the easiest analogy to think is that these poly polygonal walls are like taking a bag of marshmallows and squ squishing them together. Each one winds up being a very unique uh, shape, and they all interlock with each other. And that's why when we physically take um, stonemasons to look at some of these, they are just they are blown away because they can't figure out how they could do it with modern machinery, let alone Bronze Age tools. Wow. Wow. And obviously that is where a lot of people come in and and say that you know it had to be aliens they must have been taught this by another race of beings uh, what would you say to that is that the way you feel about it or do you think that they were just extremely intelligent people well they were very advanced whoever they were and the problem that we have is um We see the result of advanced technology uh, that is clearly older than cultures like the Inca and also dynastic Egyptians, but there is no evidence, physical evidence, of the existence of these people, as in no skeletons have been found which can be dated um, that far back in time. The theory that I'm working on is that uh, about 12,000 years ago, the end of the Ice Age was very rapid and cataclysmic. And um, it did a lot of different things to the planet. According to Dr. Robert Schock, the, the world's oceans rose by 300 feet in as little as two weeks. So the, the end of the Ice Age was not this gradual process of warming. It was cataclysmic in nature. Um, that rise of sea level would also push heavily down on the, the tectonic plates, creating earthquakes and turning volcanoes on and darkening the sky and likely wiping out um, any civilization that existed in very specific places. So, again, we're talking sites such as Egypt, Peru, Bolivia, Greece, uh, probably Turkey, uh, and areas like that. Let me ask you about uh, a particular skull that was very fascinating to read about, and I, I apologize if my pronunciation is not that great, but I believe it is the white I believe that was the name of the skull and the meaning is friend or equal. Can you tell me about this skull? Because obviously when you see a photo of this, it looks like uh, a human, but not quite human. Well, again, um, I've shown the Waiki. Actually, it's almost a complete skeleton. And I've, I've shown that uh, in person to num hundreds of people by now, but also probably 30 plus foreign medical experts and um, none of them can explain the the shape of the skull and its proportion in comparison to the skeleton because Waiki's skull is the size of her torso um, so it's not the result of hydrocephaly or in any genetic disease that that we know of it simply doesn't fit in with um, 
what a human being looks like. So that's why uh, medical professionals are simply dumbfounded. They say, I've, I've never seen anything like this before. It was also taken to a laboratory, uh, medical laboratory in, in Cusco, and it, it was, uh, they did MRI, x-rays, and examination by, I think, six different do doctors, and all of them said, I've never seen anything like this before, which is what you would um, think was humanoid, but not a human being. I was just going to quickly ask, um, and would a larger um, skull and larger volume imply a larger brain, and would that in turn imply greater intelligence? Uh, most likely, uh, because all of the elongated skulls that I've examined, were able, you're able to take a flashlight and put it inside through the foramen magnum, and you can see where the veins made an impression on the interior of the skull. So um, some people have said, well, you know, the brain was just like, uh, was a normal size and the rest was fluid. It's not true. The brains were oblong and filled the entire cavity. So in the case of Waikiki, um, if you're comparing with a, with a human, a normal human being, uh, she supposedly died when she was about two years old, but her dentition is more like that of a seven or eight year old. And there are many other, uh, physical anomalies that, um, that she has that again, don't, uh, relate to any known possible disease or, or genetic, um, human trait. Speaking of Waikiki, uh, in your book, you said that Dr. Theo Paredes says that this could be an example of a branch of humanity that went extinct. Is that how you feel about it? And have you found any other uh, similar skulls to Waikiki? Well, recently there was the discovery we made in a tiny museum in uh, on the shore of Lake Titicaca in Bolivia, where this seven to nine month old fetus um, who died during childbirth um, its skull was the size of its torso. So it, it, it was born or was going to be born with an enormous elongated skull where we are yet to get permission to do DNA testing of both it and what is believed to be the mother, but we're definitely going to do that. Uh, there are also stories of, uh, little villages up in the highlands of Peru with very small houses that could have, um, been where more of, of the Waikiki people uh, so we're we're always on on the lookout for uh, anomalous uh, skulls and skeletons like that. And you also mentioned a little about the gifts that the Paracas mummies were buried with. I'd be interested to know, um, you know, what types of things were they buried with? Just to get an idea, what sorts of objects they found valuable. One of the interesting things about the Paracas is that they spontaneously developed as a civilization, which doesn't make any sense at all. Before before they arrived, all you had were hunter-gatherers, and then all of a sudden you, you have these people who had uh, some of the most complicated textile created on the planet um, with something like 300 different shades of, of color, very similar to what you see in the Middle East, which is interesting, like very bright reds and blues and greens and yellows and things like that. And that's, that's not something that's, that uh, rapidly develops. Something like textile technology takes a long time. Um, also, there's evidence that they knew of the potter's wheel, which wasn't supposed to exist in the Americas. Um, so they, the chiefly class were usually buried with their finest textiles wrapped around them. 
and then personal objects such as their finest bowl would be in their lap. Um, some crude gold ornaments. The practice weren't weren't very very good at um, metallurgy, um, but um, their their prized possessions were buried with them. That's incredible. And what efforts have been made to accurately date these skulls? Well, as far as I know. Um, we're basically the only ones that have ever done it, wow. which sounds crazy. Right. But, um, yeah, in previous to our investigations, a lot of, um, the work has been supposition. Uh, there aren't any good radiocarbon labs in Peru, but there's easy access to other ones in the United States or even Chile. So that's why, um, upcoming studies will be, um, doing testing of organic material uh, in order found at practice sites in order to be able to scientific, properly scientifically date them. Because, again, there's been too much supposition as to when they first appeared. Um, and any archaeologist which is honest will will tell you, we don't know where the practice people came from. They just seem to appear 700 B.C. and then appear by 180. That's why, that's why they're a mystery. That's why they fascinate me. And that's why most academics won't touch them with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I was going to say, there's definitely an apprehension, it seems. But is there a fear as to how this could change human history as we know it? Do you think that's why they're not approaching this subject? That's the common thought. But it's, it's actually, it's, that kind of mindset is incredibly childish. Because if somebody appeared from another land using ships or something rather than the, uh, the, the land, the bearing land bridge, then that enhances history. It gives you a more interesting story to talk about. Just like Cusco. If, if Cusco was actually originally created something like 12,000 years ago, then that gives Peru a much more fascinating, um, historical record than, well, the Inca appeared, um, around a years ago from Lake Titicaca and then the Spanish wiped them out. That's kind of a dull story. But if, if you say they found an abandoned megalithic city that was created using some kind of advanced technology, then, you know, that's a much more interesting um, story to tell. Right. Absolutely. And what about the dating of the megalithic structures? And you do mention um, cosmogenic, um, is it cosmogenic um, testing? And it sounds like probably the best thing we have nowadays but how accurate is it really and i'm no scientist but i've read pros and cons online and some people say it's just not possible to date something within the last several thousand years on an accurate scale it's it's only really um if it's millions of years ago we can kind of get a rough estimate well, supposedly it's, it's quite a good technique. Um, what it does is it measures the buildup of cosmic radiation inside certain types of stone. But the problem we've had is that there are, I think, something like 10 laboratories that can, uh, can do this kind of testing. Uh, the first laboratory that we contacted was at Purdue University. And when they found out where the samples we're going to come from, they simply said, we're not going to test, uh, do a test for you. Um, because they, I think they were literally afraid of the results. And then we contacted a second laboratory in France. Uh, they did testing of stone that was brought 
or, or sent by an individual from the Pumapunku area. And uh, the response we got back was, we will give you the results if you promise not to mention our laboratory. And I wrote back oh, and wow. said, that's fine. We just want the results. We don't need to, to mention the name of your laboratory. And then they wrote back again and said, well, I'm sorry, we have to refund your money because the date that we found cannot conflict with what archaeologists believe the age of the site is. What? Wow. <laughs> no, that's, that's how science works. You think science is this, is this incredible quest for, for knowledge. You don't believe the boys' networks that go on and girls' networks of trying to cover things up. It's, it's absolutely appalling. I'm, I'm shocked. No, I'm shocked. Yeah, I think it, it goes against everything we are taught a lot of times of what science is and should be. I um yeah, I'm I'm speechless. But there, you know, there are there are many fine scientists, but there are those that once again, if this conflicts with with what they believe, they don't want to know about it because it will they think ruin their career and uh it's kind of too bad because this information has to get out one way or the other you can't suppress the truth it's it's inhumane and it's also not moral to cover things up i couldn't agree more i am quite shocked that you found that type of resistance put it that way uh because yeah. This is something that I think anybody would jump at the chance. I know I, you know, if I had the qualifications and the degrees, right, I would totally jump at the chance at having a shot at figuring what is going on with these skulls and, and these findings. And yeah, it's really shocking to me to hear that people will value their career over a greater truth that could make our, our lives and probably give a little bit more of a meaning to our existence. If yeah, you people are always afraid of a paradigm shift. Yeah. It, it takes a long time for people to accept big ideas. But the, the, par the paradigm shift is, ha is happening. Nobody can stop it. Mm -hmm. with, with the internet, it's like, sorry, too late. <laughs> right. Let me ask you about the, the Ica stones real quick. I wanted to know what you can tell me real briefly about that. Because... Uh, that is something that you always hear both sides of the argument. Some people say that, yeah, they are legitimate. Other people believe that they're hoax based on who found them, I believe. So what can you tell me briefly a bit about that, if you have any knowledge of it? Well, we have some in the house. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And, and we know a, a good friend of ours is a lady who has made more than 4,000 of them. So they are a hoax. Um, Okay, so we can we know, they, clarify officially that those are hopes. Yeah, they are. They are because um, if you go to the museum where they're located, I asked three very simple questions of the person at the museum. I said, "How old are they?" And he said, "More than six million years old." And then I said, um, "Who made them?" And he said, "Aliens from Pleiades made them." <laughs> and I honestly can't remember what the, what the third one was, but as you can, the story is is quite ridiculous. They're very poorly done, and just because they show depictions of animals or dinosaurs and people together doesn't mean that they were made a long time ago. Uh, any archaeologist in Peru, the, as far as I know, that you talk to, just break out laughing if you if you ask them, "Do you think the Inca stones are real?" They say, "No, of course not." And um. I had a question related to something you mentioned earlier on in the interview because it got me thinking. You speak about um, an extensive 
underground and cave habitation system they seem to have had, or, well, they did have. And we at least know now that they had an extensive, um, very deep knowledge of, you know, irrigation and they had great water management systems. But what methods did they use to um, light up their living quarters and tunnelways? Was it just fire or did they have something more advanced? As far as I know, there aren't big tunnels and they're actually quite simple. It's um, Each family would have their own reasonably large underground room. So you would have a, a system, they would dig down into the set, into the hard sand and then they pack the walls with stone. They would build a roof made of a, a cane-like material, and then cover that with sand and then have a trap door. So you would actually open this trap door uh, and you go down into it. So it, it, most likely they were only used uh, during the nighttime. Okay, and the reason I asked that was because, you know, we have found evidence, at least in other parts of the world, of very basic types of batteries. And we do know that um, electrical batteries are not that difficult to make. You, I've seen um, fun little tutorials online making something from a potato, for instance, as the energy source. Did they have anything like that? Did they have any form of basic electricity, maybe? Uh, not as far as I know. And I should, I should clarify that um, during the daytime, in order to get away from the sun, they, they would probably have the trap door open <clears throat> and so have almost like a natural um, wind, like window on, on the roof kind of thing for for lighting, but uh, what's intriguing is that the practice showed no sign of having technology whatsoever. Uh, whereas in the islands of Brew, you have these incredible megalithic uh, structures. So whoever did the megalithic work had nothing to do with the practice uh, whatsoever. They were completely different people or beings or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, the former display of skulls at the Tiwanaku Museum. I don't know what the updates are, but it looks like they were made unavailable, um, at least for an indefinite period of time. Why do you think they were made unavailable? That's, that's a great question. They seem to have disappeared about six years ago. And then every time I would go back, and they literally would just, uh, or papered over the display and never put anything back in there. And the, the sign on the, the paper said, this display has been permanently retired. <laughs> and so I would, every time I would go to the museum, I would ask them, when are they coming back on display? And every time we're still cleaning them. So that took six years. And then all of a sudden, about 10 of them reappeared. And then a year later, they disappeared. And so I went to the main museum in uh, La Paz, and uh, they're supposed, supposedly going to be opening a whole section with textiles and human remains. And uh, I said, when do you think this will happen? And they said, well, we really don't know because some of them are, inf are in infected with syphilis. And so they may never go on display. Oh, and wow. I simply retorted back, you know what? If you get a bucket of bleach, that'll kill anything. So it's, <laughs> it is on some level being covered up, but I don't understand exactly why. It's kind of, it's quite silly. Yeah, no, it's definitely a bit sketchy uh, because um, a lot of these museums, we do know that they don't have like a big, uh, you know, not a lot of funding, not a big academic backing. And a lot of these things have never really been looked into. So it seems strange that they should care so much about these skulls. 
It's true. It's true. Very true. A lot of these um, ancient civilizations or even just smaller communities, obviously there was a, a lot of interbreeding, um, especially when you get up to the higher societal statuses or looking at smaller um, nomadic uh, communities such as the Chinchoro people. How did it work? Because obviously nowadays we try to avoid ancestral interbreeding as much as possible because of the possible congenital birth defects and other um, diseases that can occur. Did they just not occur back then as much? Are they recent mutations? Well, I think the Paracas, for example, didn't have many options because there were very few people living in the area when they arrived somewhere around 3,000 years ago. Uh, so I, I think there was an effort to try to maintain their bloodline, but it could have started to get into genetic problems with such inbreeding. Whereas the Inca, um, there's a fallacy that the Inca uh, royalty were solely breeding with each other, which doesn't appear to be true after, you know, you, after you study this kind of thing for 12 years and, or, or, or so, even experts, um, what the Inca were very much into was quality of, of everything. So they would selectively, they, they did breed with their own um, bloodlines, but also if they, um, in order to have good relations with other societies, of course, the, the daughter of a high chief would marry one of the high Incas and they would produce children kind of thing. But they, they, were, they would always see people who had probably high intelligence, uh, physical beauty, um, artistic capabilities, things like that. That's really interesting. Um, and um, I guess it was more a, a wrap-up question. You know, as a, as a little kid, I always dreamt of becoming an archaeologist. That was like my dream job. And I was particularly fascinated by the pyramids. Would you mind telling us what it's like being an archaeologist? Is it uh, easy, difficult? Is it always as fun as it looks? Actually, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, and I think that's, that's the whole point. Because if I was, I would be stuck in the paradigm that they're in. So I'm simply a freelance adventurer who is intrigued by trying to figure out the logic of how all of this was done. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so, so that's why I'm allowed to do whatever I want, because I don't have anybody to uh, answer to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's definitely the way to go when approaching these topics, because as you mentioned earlier, you will encounter some resistance from the established um, schools of thought, if you will. Well, I, I'll put um, freelance adventurer then as my <laughs> dream job now. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's the best way to go. Mr. Forrester, you're going to be here at uh, Joshua, in the, uh, Joshua in the Desert. Look at that. It's made up a new conference. Contact in the Desert at Joshua Tree. It's happening May 19th through the 22nd. What can f folks expect to uh, hear from you out there? I know you got a workshop as well as uh, I believe you're going to partake in some panels. Yeah, um, I'm giving a talk uh, based on my book Aftershock, which is about the megalithic structures um, and the cataclysmic edge that we see and the, the evidence that advanced civilizations uh, existed 12,000 years ago, which also is when Atlantis was supposedly destroyed. Um, and so there'll be slide, it'll be quite an extensive slideshow of, uh, Peru, Bolivia, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Japan, Greece, and all the other 
ancient megalithic sites. And then the next morning, somewhere around 10, I think it is, I'm giving my talk about the elongated skulls of uh, Peru and Bolivia, including the latest DNA analysis that we will have at the time. And I will also have uh, photographs of recent discoveries of um, animals, with, let's just say uh, human-looking beings that don't fit the evolutionary paradigm. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. So definitely, folks, if you're, uh, you're going to be in Southern California, check out Contact in the Desert, contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets. That's in Joshua Tree, May 19th through the 22nd. Brian Forrester is going to be there with a whole other galaxy of amazing, amazing speakers. Mr. Forrester, why don't you tell people at home where they can find you online and uh, where they can get your books and all that good stuff? Okay, everything about me can be found at hiddenincatours.com. It's a, a massive database uh, that gets updated almost daily. Um, Link to all of my almost 900 YouTube videos are there. Uh, upcoming tours, books, uh, tons of free information. So that's uh, that's my master mega website. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Forster. Uh, it's been an amazing time talking to you about, you know, this really fascinating topic. And honestly, I urge people, if they're going to be in Southern California, check out Contact in the Desert. We'll be there. And we definitely want to check out your talk on these new animal, human type uh, uh, remains that, that you have found. That really sparked our interest. Thank you so much, Mr. Forster. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And that was Mr. Brian Forster, author of Elongated Skulls of Peru and Bolivia, The Path of Baracocha. It was a, honestly a fascinating, fascinating book. It was like taking a little adventure. It has a ton of uh, photos that really help kind of, you know, get the information to, to sink in. In my opinion, it, it always helps when discussing some of these topics. Oh, yeah, no, the discussing things it's is definitely, you know, several levels up above just reading it. And uh, the books themselves are fascinating enough. So um, getting to speak to the author is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, no, especially, like I said, a topic like this where, you know, over the years, a lot of things have been said. Um, it was really cool to tackle it and, you know, kind of sift through some of the, 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 the myth and legend, I guess, of it all. Anyways, we're going to let the folks at home go to bed now and, and uh, maybe, this yeah, little, definitely, uh, maybe have a few crazy dreams yeah. about alternate dimensions. Tweet, tweet <laughs> us your crazy dreams in the morning. We'll love to hear them. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. Check out the website, WOTRRadio.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just hit the subscribe button and it'll all be there magically every time we publish it. <laughs> yes. uh, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Catch her here Thursday nights hosting No Added Flavors. Music, fun, facts and jokes and a whole lot more. Uh, <laughs> that being said, take care, be safe, God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. And we're going to go out with one of my favorite 90s jams. This one is um, actually from uh, a band that's uh, from your neck of the woods. Genevieve, this is Space Hog <laughs> with In the Meantime. Enjoy, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.